0: You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne.
1: This is a land that prays for a hero. The humor of the entire situation suddenly gave way to a run for survival. You are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on Triple R 1027 FM.
0: Good evening, and welcome to this week's edition of Greening the Apocalypse, three triple R's weekly look at the past, present, and future as it is, as it could be, and as we might like it to be. That sounds about right, doesn't it, Jed? It does. It sounds very right. Redefine the purpose of the show most weeks, don't (laughs) I? Uh, How do you be, Jed McCarty? I'm I'm pretty well actually. I'm uh, fighting fit. We've got a guest in the studio this evening. He's part of an organisation uh, called WATCH, who are a conservation group, activism group, and uh, involved with some citizen science. And uh, he's a ripper bloke. We've been hanging out in the green room and having a chat. He also sports the uh, the, the, chin, the face rug and the little word curtain above the mouth there. Justin Kelly, how are you? Yeah, not too bad. Awesome. It's good to be here. You're uh, so we've been having a great yak out there. In fact, we had to sort of be quite cautionary to not spend all of our uh, talk tickets all at once. But you're involved in an organisation called Watch. What's uh, what's that stand for?
2: Yeah, so uh, Watch, spelt W-O-T-C-H, mm. uh, stands for Wildlife of the Central Highlands. And um, for those listeners in victoria or melbourne um the central highland broadly includes those areas stretching i guess from Healesville hmm. and telangia out in the west up north um through the rubicon to eildon yep um and all the way out in the east to Borbore.
0: yeah some of the more beautiful parts of it's yeah right an
2: incredible beautiful forest it is yeah it is um so how how and when did watch come about Yeah, so um, I wasn't there when it started. I was actually still in high school, but it essentially grew um, out of tragedy in the 2009 Black Saturday bushfires. There was a guy called um, uh, Trent, um, and he almost lost his house um, in those bushfires then. Uh, What he did as a career was he was a thermographer, which means he sort of used thermal imaging cameras to check various industrial equipment to see if it's working properly mm. and stuff like that. Um, but he started to get involved and realised that um, there was an endangered species out in the forest um, that not many people could find or catch, yeah. and that was the Leadbeater's possum. Um, and he thought with this uh, thermal imaging camera, he could go out and search for them and find them. Mm. Um, and sort of from that point in time... Uh, there was sort of a push for getting citizens, ordinary people, out into the forest and searching for endangered, threatened um, wildlife that uh, unfortunately the government wasn't doing enough of, in our Mm. opinion.
0: You were saying that a little bit. You feel like there's there's, uh, a lot of work that you guys do that really should fall to um, the conservation arms of government. Um, I suppose to do that obviously requires funding that's always a thing that's got to be justified to taxpayers etc blah 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 blah, blah. do you find is there room within the citizen science movement to be doing those surveys and doing that work that maybe you get a more passionate and uh and maybe even a more honest response i mean is there a chance that if government are doing these numbers and maybe doctor the figures a little bit uh, you know, that's my yeah, slightly yeah, nah. suspicious and <laughs> cynical.
2: No, I, I I understand that, and I'm a big backer of citizen science. Yep. Um, unfortunately, sort of the the situation we've got ourselves in at the moment is that uh, within the Central Highlands, there's. Um, Uh, a lot of logging going on. Right. And so um, that logging uh, makes a profit for the logging industry. Mm -hmm. Um, But before they log an area, they're supposed to do pre-harvest surveys. Yeah. Um, And more often than not, they don't do that or they don't do that properly and that's where we come in. (laughs) We love to be um, acting as a citizen science organisation that can work with, you know, research partners, get people out in the forest really enjoying their time Mm. rather than sort of chasing almost deadlines. Hey, this area is going to be logged in two weeks. Um, It hasn't been surveyed. We need to go out there and that kind of stuff. So it's it's probably more the perspective on... um, yeah, what we're doing out there rather than, hey, we don't want to go out into the forest and stuff like that. Mm. So I think it's that, um, that shift in mindset. Awesome. Who are some of the research partners you just mentioned? Um, well, we haven't um, really developed any but yet, but uh, essentially there's uh, a, f- a couple of major universities that yeah. um, do some research in this area, um, primarily, um, primarily ANU, so Australian National University in Canberra. Um, and the amazing thing about this forest is that it's one of the places that has long-term monitoring data, so there's essentially 30 years worth of research on this ecosystem. Yeah, right. and from their um, data, uh, they can tell that this ecosystem is on the verge of collapse because um, they've looked at the data over 30 years and found, you know, the number of hollows um, that support wildlife is decreasing, um, water quality, a lot of old-growth forest um, keeps on decreasing, and that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, there's also people at Melbourne Uni, Parks Victoria... Yep. um, ..even uh, the Government Research Institute, ARI. Um, so there's many different research uh, institutes working in the forest um, and we have our place in, you know, trying to get... Uh, ..trying to find species in areas that maybe w- will not be surveyed because um, they are earmarked to be logged. Yeah, right. Why did you personally
0: get involved in, with WATCH?
2: Yeah, so... Um, it was in 2016. I was uh, on a university exchange over in Malaysia and I remember um, flying in and you can see, see palm oil um, plant As far as eye can yeah, see. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, and not only that, is that uh, um, for a period of time there, I had to wear a face mask because the air is so thick with essentially uh, peat smoke or the smoke yeah. from the burns blowing all the way over from, from Borneo. Yeah. I thought, how can this be happening? Like why are they doing this? What kind of government would do this? And mm. I come home and then I s- start to realise that um, actually behind Indonesia, <laughs> Australia is uh, <laughs> is not good on that front oh. and I started to realise that um, the amount of logging we're doing in Victoria alone is, is on a, such a huge scale mm. um, and we also you know burn those areas just like they do in Indonesia yeah. and um, I don't know if you remember, but back in autumn, uh, it was quite hazy for... Uh, a few weeks and government said, oh, plan burn, plan burns. About 75% of the pollution coming from that was from logging coops or logging areas that they ignite after they log that area. So, um, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) I sort of got involved because I thought um, I need to be doing something about this and uh, it's something that was particularly obvious to me, I think. So, I think with um, perhaps a lot of... Uh, conservation you know there's so many things that go wrong should I be out there sticking stop stickers everywhere or what should I be doing but this was just made so much sense because sort of as a student of science um I realized how important um the science underpinning it was so Yeah. yeah it's an obvious choice for me and what do you do when you're actually out there surveying. So what does that involve? Yeah, so it's uh, quite a tricky process. Um, so as I mentioned before with the thermal cameras, um, that's perhaps one of our main tools and it depends what species we're looking out for. Um I guess two of the main species we're looking for is Leadbeater's possums and greater gliders. So don't know if you know what they look like, but Leadbeater's possum, small, almost looks like a sugar glider and yeah. runs really quick throughout the forest. Yeah. Then its cousin is the absolute opposite. It's the greater glider and it sits at the top of the treetops and yeah. it eats leaves all day. Um, yeah. It's <laughs> It doesn't do much, but um, it's a gliding possum and it can glide across the canopy. Mm. So when we're looking for Leadbeater's possums, we... Uh, go out into an area that we think is has decent habitat for it or perhaps is scheduled to be logged, um, we take our uh, thermal cameras yep. and we basically walk around the bush all night. Um, uh, it's not particularly easy a lot of the time. Yep. Um, but when we find a Leadbeater's possum, um, uh, we have to video record it and in that same frame we need to record the GPS coordinates. And that's because in 2014, um, uh, because of a lot of community pressure, the government came to a compromise and said, okay, for every Leadbeater's possum sighting, we'll have a 200 metre protection buffer against logging. Oh, right. So um, this is sort of our, uh, uh, how should I say, a little treat for us to, to yeah. chase after um, yeah. because we get to protect little patches of forest. It's a direct conservation benefit we get from that. Can you chase them 200 metres down the road? I was going to say, can you grab them under your arm and just spend the whole night moving? They're really quick. Um, What's particularly fascinating about this species is that you you look at it and you realise how incredibly resilient it can be. Um, And then at the same time you realise that it's been smashed through logging, fire, um, Mm. uh, you know, large habitat clearing cats um, cats yeah, as yeah. well now and, there's footage and it's our footage. state
1: symbol or one of the state yeah. symbols yep. and yet you and know. there's no regard,
0: yeah. yeah. Right. Isn't it weird? Like, you take one of those things, take just take fire and go, that's heavy. Like, that's a heavy thing for a species mm-hmm. to deal with. But you, then you start throwing cats and, and you know, inv- I mean, to what degree do these things... Obviously, cats and foxes are the, um, you know, the pin-up you know, poster childs for um, invasive species and predators. But, I mean, what about things like domestic rats and, and things like that getting out there? And to what degree do even... I know that in, introduced birds put a lot of pressure on native birds sometimes. Mm-hmm. Is it a similar thing with possums
2: and Leadbeater's possums? Yeah. So in my um, conversations with um, a bit of an expert on Leadbeater's possums, uh, Dan Harley from Zoos Vic, um, uh, it's still got a big question mark over it in terms of what role things like predation play. Um, And generally because I think they're quite agile, it's perhaps not much of a thing. And that's why it's always been thought it's logging and fire. So the 2009 Saturday Um, Black Saturday bushfires burnt 45% of Leadbeater's possum habitat and we're already talking about only a very small region of the central highlands. It doesn't exist anywhere else. Um, So essentially you've got a very restricted um, range Um, and, yeah, although predation wasn't thought much of a thing, uh, there's been footage actually released a couple of days ago that shows uh, nest boxes which the government puts out to... um, uh, as sort of a measure to try to um, yeah. have some habitat in you, there, you're allowed to say tokenism. on the Show <laughs> yeah. um, some token habitats that yeah. replace uh, uh, that replace the hollows um, that would naturally form in a tree, but mm. uh, feral cats sitting on top of it, uh, because as the cat sees it, it's a place where food comes from. Yeah. Mm. So what's what's the logic at a 200 meter
1: radius? I, I mean, I would have thought those little fellows probably moved 200 meters pretty quickly mm. so you know not logging a 200 meter radius he might not or he or she it might not be there yeah you know and it might not live there it's just you've seen it there while he's out yep. hunting at night or whatever yeah, good they do point
2: yeah it's it's <laughs> because that 200 meter buffer is actually compromised so essentially the anu researchers which have been studying ledbetus possums for um decades suggested that one kilometer uh That's what I would have thought. Would have a high probability of maybe protecting that species, but of course, um, conservation is about compromise. And because um, that would uh, severely um, affect the logging industry, um, the compromise was put at a 200 meter protection buffer. Um, So it's really not um, long term protection for that possum. Uh, because you can essentially go into an area that's been logged, and there's a little buffer around an area um, that there's species is no still in there. <laughs> yeah that species <laughs> is still unlikely to survive. So,
0: yeah. what sort of so I mean, if that's a compromise that's had to be made, what sort of uh, uh, what sort of punishment is in place? I mean, if if those if that deal is broken or if, you know those demarcations are, are are infringed upon, is
2: there is there some some recourse that you guys can take? Um, Well, currently there's a few court cases going on across the state, um, one in East Gippsland, not regarding Leadbeater's possums, but um, some rainforest logging because essentially there's a certain code of conduct the logging industry must abide by. Mm. But the real problem is that, uh, and it gets quite complicated, that logging is actually exempt from environmental laws. So there's a thing called called RFAs or Regional Forest Agreements and they were signed about 20 years ago Um, and they exempt logging from other environmental laws. So you can have an open-cut mine and that's still subject to environmental laws, not forestry. Um, So native forestry is just on a whole... Another level, and again, when I started learning more and more about this, I'm like, "How is this possible? How is this possible?" I reckon a lot of politicians don't even know that, um, know that fact. Mm. But it essentially means, yeah, you can log habitat, and there's uh, no real consequences for that. There are sort of. um, I guess guidelines and uh, forestry standards as they call it mm. to sort of guide them. But I think the main problem is, is that you've essentially got the logging company, Vic forests who are logging the area. You've got the supposed regulator or the environment department mm. also run by the government. You've got the um, demand is coming from uh, p- largely a paper mill uh, um, out in Maryvale, but mm. now a, uh, a timber mill in Hayfield, Mm. which the government has just bought. So they own the logging company, they own the supposed regulator in terms of the environment um, department and they own the demand. So So there's no conflict of interest in there. Not (laughs) not one. (laughs) Three. It's it's so so unprecedented, I would say, anywhere in the world to have something like this. Um, So it's very hard for, again, the regulations to be enforced and it really takes a lot of published public outcry yeah. to make anything happen and luckily we have amazing people in their campaign and uh, people at um, Environmental Justice Australia doing an amazing job in taking yeah. um, these organisations to court.
0: Christ. It sounds like the sort of strange uh, interplay between business and government that happens in China and people get really steamed up about it but it's, yeah. it's right yeah. on your doorstep. Exactly, it's happening right here. are listening to greening
1: the apocalypse on
0: 3 triple r justin kelly is our guest in the studio this evening the studio currently hosting us that's greening the apocalypse <laughs> getting ahead of myself here Jed. uh justin kelly is from watch which is a conservation and activism group uh based in the central highlands Start. what does that stand for again justin Wildlife of the Central Highlands. Thank you. I wasn't testing you. I had just gone completely blank. I've had a long day. Um, we were having a chat about the origins of WATCH and how you got involved and and some of the different things you found along the way. You were talking initially about um, the need to survey the Leadbeater's possum uh, and uh, and some of the other wildlife out there. But off-air before the show even started, it, it, I found out that you're studying uh, evolutionary biology. And so... Makes some sense, I think, to ask you about the actual, the broader ecosystem of the Central Highlands. What's the significance of it in terms? I mean, just within Australia, let alone the world. But what's the significance of the area?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's it's quite um, a unique ecosystem in its own right. Um, uh, it's actually listed by the IUCN, which um, which is what uh, the International Univ- uh, Union for the Conservation of Nature. Um, and they do all the listings, you know, for rhinos endangered or whatever they, Mm. they do those. But, um, so it's listed as critically endangered, um, by them. So it's a critically endangered ecosystem because, um, it's so unique in a way. Um, you've got, you know, temperate rainforest through it. You've got mountain ash, which is arguably the tallest tree in the world. If it wasn't logged. Um, definitely the tallest flowering plant. Definitely. Yep. The tallest flowering plant. Um, and you've got amazing, unique species, um, and I think we yeah, we talked about the lead beaters, possum, but things like the Greater Glider, Sooty Owls. Is it very is it very old as an as an ecosystem goes? Um I'm not too sure about um in terms of terms of age in in that respect. Um, yeah, I'm I'm not too sure in I mean things
0: shift and move and everything yeah. like that. And but yeah, I mean yeah, are we talking tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands?
2: Yeah, I wouldn't be able to tell you that, that um
0: good. Yeah, but it, but as you say, like it's an area of significance and in need of protection. So, I mean, so what are, well, you were just starting to talk about some of the species endemic to the area. So, did you say sooty owls?
2: Yeah, sooty, sooty owls. Um, I won't uh, embarrass myself trying to do the call, but if you hear one of those <laughs> out in the forest, it, yeah. it feels like a bomb or not doesn't feel, but it sounds like a bomb going off in the forest. Right, they've got a very unique and distinct call. Yep. Um, And are they endemic to that area? uh, They range up the east coast of Australia and the same with the greater glider. Um, Up in the north part of their range, up in Queensland, there's different subspecies. Um, But really what we're seeing, and I mean, if you ask scientists about, you know, whether something's endangered or threatened, it's not necessarily about the raw numbers of the species. How many are there? It's the... um, trajectory of that species so right. greater gliders um, for instance um, we're seeing over the previous few decades that the um, uh, the amount of sites they're occupying are rapidly decreasing right um, and greater gliders as I mentioned before they essentially sit up the top of trees and eat leaves um, you can think of them as like a koala of the night and this <laughs> means they're at their ecological um, maximum so they're not uh, they're not eating that good of a food source, which means perhaps they're more susceptible um, to a lot of those environmental pressures and threats and things like that. So Mm. there was actually, um, uh, this one in particular was about uh, over in East Gippsland, but there was an ABC special report on Sunday night um, about the greater glider um, and sort of the logging of the greater glider habitat. Um, But essentially, uh, because there's no real protection for for that greater glider, you Mm. can find... In the central highlands, you can find 20 greater gliders and you can report that to the government and the government doesn't have to do anything about it. So right. um, it's only... So what,
0: they're not compelled, they're not required to register numbers or anything? No, well, they're or? not
2: um, required to essentially halt logging or stop logging. So um, in over in East Gippsland, if you find 11, and that's 11, not 10, if you mm. find 11 greater gliders yeah. um, within an area, then it, that area gets protection. Um, Mind you, they found 10... They found 11 and um, uh, then the government went and re-surveyed the area and only found 10 Um, and then they logged that area. Um, That was over in East Gippsland. Um, But, yeah, in the Central Highlands, we don't have any of that protection. So... We're left to essentially campaign on their behalf. There was a really um, big Greater Glider hotspot, um, a place called Hermitage Creek, and many people drive through the Black Spur. It's yep. like Hillsville yep. to Marysville, kind of. Yep. Um, and it's just around there. And, um, I was out one night and we found just in, you know, one night, 12 Greater Gliders, and of course that wouldn't have got any protection, mm. um, but we campaigned hard and we got lots of community essentially writing emails to the government yep. and um, luckily the government... Um, the environment, environment Minister stepped in at the last minute and halted that. So in that case where
1: they've found 10 and they've decided to keep logging, uh, do you, it would probably be you guys, but does anyone try and you know, relocate them before they log or it's just BAM?
2: No. Um, yeah, it's just BAM. And Jeez. that special report on the ABC was um, about uh, Vic Forrest's experiment and their experiment is to essentially... Uh, log different areas at different intensities and see what happens to the greater glider. This is the equivalent of scientific whaling um, in terrestrial Uh. ecosystems. It's like, Uh. let's cut the forest, burn it down and see if any survive. And so um, you had basically the Vic Forests admitting, yes, gliders will die in this, but we just want to see what happens. And they've done this before. They've done it with the bau frog, which now there's only like about 50... Left and they've done it with leadbeater's possums. It's essentially, oh, we're going to log an area because we want to make profit mm. out of it, and we'll, you know, call science. We're doing science here, or you know, the whaling we're greenies too. Yeah, um, but yeah, it's all just um, a greenwash. And um, yeah. yeah. So when it comes down
0: to you're getting in the ear of government what's the what's the method that you guys utilize i mean i know there's there's been a long history of environmental activism in australia and it's ranged from you know petitions all the way through to uh tree sits and 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 all the rest of it sabotaging logging equipment probably a couple of those methods get regular everyday people offside for various reasons what what do you guys find is the most effective way to
2: draw a halt to the bulldozers? Well, I think we occupy a unique space and I think um, uh, in terms of the forest movement is that we go out and survey for this and we are very transparent with all our data. Um, You know, good scientific practice is about transparency so we submit our data um, through forest reports uh, to the government and we do try to petition them and it's not just actually... um, animal species, there's threatened tree species yep, like yep. the tree G-bung um, uh, that we do, you know, submit and say, hey, there's a threatened species here. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about mm. it? But often it just falls on deaf ears, unfortunately. Yeah. And so that sort of fuels that, that activism part of us. Mm. Um, and again, ideally, in an ideal world, it would be we submit the reporting. Oh, great. Thanks for doing that. Um, you know, we're yeah. definitely not going to log that area, work. but you, yeah. it's it's always um, a struggle. And unfortunately, um, with the interactions with uh, the current government, um, it really does fall on deaf ears. Yeah, I'd imagine uh, some of your data
1: supports work of other organisations like the environmental justice you mentioned um, and probably even uh, um, some of the other more... Uh, activist type organisations than yourself. So yeah, it seems like there's a real role there for that, that um, what I'd call clean data. You know? Yeah, it's, it's not
2: biased in any way. Yep. Um, and yeah, EJ have been really good. And um, there's a current court case going on where um, uh, they're essentially taking Vic Forrest to court. Um, it's quite a long story, but uh, while that court, court case is proceeding, mm. there's a number of logging coops or logging areas that are on halt mm-hmm. until um, the court case court case is resolved. Yeah. And those particular coops that are on halt, um, they've been chosen as ones that have high numbers of greater gliders or lead beaters possums, which is mainly from our data and yeah. our surveys. Jake, Blake, Haley um, are the main ones who you know are. Out there and Big shout that. out to Jake Blake and Haley. Yeah, hey,
0: um, what's what's a survey look like? So if you're going out in, in the night time, I mean, what sort of sort of time frame? What time of year? What what's the method?
2: Um, all through the year, basically. Yeah. Uh, probably probably more in summer. Yeah. Um, Just nicer weather. N- nicer <laughs> weather, but I mean, the advantage of winter is you can start early and potentially yep. finish earlier. Um, sometimes you stay out in the forest and sleep overnight in the yeah, car. Beautiful. Um sometimes uh you take the long drive back um back home. Um yeah, so I guess we do a bit of pre-planning. We um, look at areas where um, a good habitat yep. um scheduled to be logged. Um and yeah, we go out survey. We um we utilise a couple of different techniques. We have the um, thermal imaging camera, which works well for Leadbeater's possums. Mm. But for greater gliders, having a spotlight, just a bright torch, yeah. and shining it up at the canopy works really well. Um, and, and that works well because greater gliders have really bright eye shine. So mm. you get that reflection back. And although they might be 50 metres away, you can see, yeah, that's a greater glider. And do you have to photograph that to prove that you saw it? Yeah, Yeah. so we need to record that and we need to record that with a GPS coordinates um, there as well. So we have a GPS, a mobile GPS with us and we have to record that and then submit that as proof. Um, Unfortunately, they Uh, don't uh, trust us enough. Are those
0: the species that are the main focus of the survey? As you were saying earlier, you spot other things like uh, tree G-bungs and other rare species of uh, fauna and flora, but is, is the main thing you're
2: looking for the, the possums? Yeah, so um, of course the Leadbeater's possum gives us the buffer and yes. no other species gives us that. So in terms of direct protection, that gives us the most. But mind you, um, greater gliders are becoming more important, both mm-hmm. um, in terms of finding them, recording them and submitting them um, for biodiversity data, as well as the community have really been outspoken on um, greater gliders and they want to see a management plan an action plan it's been listed as threatened but there's been no um, recovery plan or anything like that yeah. uh, sorted out for it.
1: You are listening to a triple R podcast podcast etc
2: <laughs>
0: <You, you. laughs> Earlier in the year earlier this year late last year we, we actually had a guest on, uh, on the show uh, Rowan Reid who's into agroforestry he grows uh, trees down in the Otways um, I mean is it would there be a compromise at, at some stage within this if, if if the clearfell logging was to stop but there was moves towards you know very small scale selective logging is that what Rowan seemed to be saying was that that can uh, encourage planting of trees and reduction of clearfelling and still create enough of a commodity within a forest to 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 satisfy the needs of the market or whatever the hell i don't know is there a thing is there a room within that do you think in the central highlands to selectively log you know one in 100 or one in 500 trees for fine timber and so
2: forth is that a better outcome if we could reach something like that well so i mean if you ask perhaps um, a decade ago ago or a yeah. couple of decades ago, um, that was likely an option, but hmm. essentially the ecosystem has been rapidly overlogged, and again, right. as i said it 's listed by the IucN as critically endangered yeah. within Victoria or within australia actually eighty seven percent of our wood product needs already come from plantations, yeah right. even within the central highlands, um, an environmental assets report or economic assets r- report um, valued uh, plantation timber within the central highlands is more valuable. Um, ah. than native forest logging. Why, um, why is that? Why does it show up that way on the balance sheet? Uh, essentially, there's, there's quite a few plantations already there. So, um, And people might say, oh, yeah, plantations are not good for wildlife and stuff like that. Mm. Well, essentially with plantations or growing trees on farmland and stuff like yep. that, it's already cleared land. There's yes. sort of not that biodiverse hotspot there. Mm. Um, so you're really not losing anything by planting those trees and growing them um, mm to be uh, harvested in um, 20, 30 years time. And with new developments in the timber industry in terms of um, radial saw milling and stuff like that, you can um, harvest those trees earlier um, and make more money off them. So essentially native forest logging, it's It's not profitable and that's why we saw that the Hayfield Mill Mm. um, essentially go under and the government put in $60 million. Mm. Mind you, is bought a couple of years earlier for $28 million. So, the the people who invested in that (laughs) made a lot of money. Um, uh, Yeah, so that's why we see those businesses Mm. essentially going under because it's not valued by um, the market. If right. we're talking about
0: where's, free all the, where's all the rowdy free market types <laughs> stepping in on that and saying, oh, this is yeah. communism and all that. What's going yeah. on there?
1: Where yeah, are they? Yeah. Where well, are they screaming? What Kerry Packer say, <laughs> you only get one Alan Bond in your life.
2: That's a that's a complete Alan Bond moment. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, perhaps the Liberal Party would um, say a bit more of that, but they're oh. in a coalition with the Nationals and um, they're always scared of shooters and fishers and they don't mm. want to give anything to greenies. So it's Christ. I think it, it's become a bit of a... It's a really a real hot, hot item to handle, isn't it?
1: Yeah. so oh, come on. You know, I was just going to ask a bit more about WATCH. I was going to change tack a little bit. So so how are you guys structured and how many members do you have and do you need more and all that sort of
2: stuff? Yeah, I mean, we're still quite a pretty small organisation and in terms of citizen science, we're, we're sort of unique because... Um, uh, I guess the demands of surveying can be quite tough, but um, we have sort of, I guess, a broad um, broad network of volunteers, um, a couple of hundred people, um, but a lot of it gets run by a small group of, group of individuals who are doing a lot of surveying, doing a lot of cam- campaigning and that sort of thing. But mind you, we're part of like a bigger forest movement with uh, things like the Great Forest National Park, which um, essentially is... The solution to a lot of our problems, um, Mm -hmm. creating a new national park, developing new economic opportunities, and really having the conservation um, embedded in there. So, um, yeah, I guess watch is a player in that. Um, I guess moving forward in terms of uh, getting people more involved and things like that, I think the first step is always to learn about what's going on, Um, taking an interest, start reading. Um, There's a really good book, Mountain Ash, by David Meyer and a few colleagues. Um, if you want to check that out, um, but yeah, I mean, we've got um, we've got a website and um, we're on Twitter and Facebook and that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, anybody who is keen to do some surveying, we do things like forest tours to get mm. people out there, even you know, young kids, old folks, um, cool. all out into the forest. And yeah,
0: well, I was just one of the things I wanted to touch on when you talk about getting out there and doing surveys and such as well. So. Um I mean, I, I don't know, even five years ago, it, just, it didn't seem like drones were much of a thing, but now you seem to have really advanced cameras. You're talking about thermal imaging cameras. Um, friends of mine have got drones that will um, follow their mountain bike down a hill, all sorts of stuff like that. Um, is there a bit of precedence given to potentially new members of BYO drone, BYO thermal imaging stuff? How's that kind of technology helping you guys? And, and does that make uh, does that make it a bit easier to initiate people into those survey groups if you've got this... Yeah, I mean, once upon a time it seemed to me that um, doing a wildlife survey meant scooping through um, little pieces of shit on the ground trying to work out if it was the same animal. But you guys have got a real great capacity with modern tech now. Um, And is that making it? Does that potentially make it easier to initiate people into the into the work?
2: Yeah, I I definitely think so. Um, So I mean, drones aren't a big thing for us. Although I know someone who's actually been doing a bit of work up in northern Queensland using drones to Mm. spot um, tree kangaroo. So maybe it's something in the future. At the moment, um, one thing I didn't mention was also camera traps. So we put out camera traps to. Even get lead beaters possums, but things like spot-tailed quolls. Yeah, and a right. couple of weeks ago, we were out on the slopes of Mount Borbor in some of the areas where a lot of logging has occurred. Mm. And um, it was so it was during the daytime, and we we're checking camera traps. And you know, we take the SD card out, and we've got um, we had you know five six people around us, and we're flicking through the photos. And you can see the enjoyment on people's faces when they yeah, see yeah. like even if it's just a wombat and a kidna. Little kinus, a bush rat, long-nosed potoroo. Mm. They also see a feral cat. Yeah, yeah. Um, right. But it's it's definitely a way to get people involved, um, and yeah, hopefully we can I guess get more camera traps out there and get it, more surveys. It sounds
0: like the, the the sight of those little animals showing up in the camera is probably uh, that amalgamation of lots of little wins for people who are involved. They start to see that. Um, they, you know potentially start to go oh well
1: this is actually really worthwhile work to, to get your teeth into well i imagine you could wander around for quite a while and see nothing so at least the camera trap gives you that result mm. you know i mean you're seeing days of, of footage probably so at least when you go and have a look oh well there's something there whereas you could wander around all night and not see a lead possum i would imagine
2: mm. yeah that's that's exactly yeah. right um people have gone out for yeah. years and not seen a lead beaters possum um but yeah, uh, camera traps. I think um, mm. really mm. good way to move forward as well.
0: What sort of pressure is the ecosystem getting out there from larger animals? I am thinking, like in terms of introduced species, things like uh, fallow deer, red deer, uh, brumbies, things like that. Not just John Brumby, but um, actual wild horses, uh, escaped cattle, feral pigs. Is that sort of is there a downward pressure on the ecology from those?
2: Yeah, so I mean, I think the big one in the Central Highlands is deer. Um, I still don't know how much is known about their effects largely on the ecosystem. One thing that is largely uh, suspected is um, how they spread weeds like blackberry. And so you go through areas of state forest and you see lots and lots of blackberry and it's um, pretty much not managed. So blackberry is a weed, really spiky and nasty stuff to walk through. Um, So yeah, that kind of stuff is one. Definitely... Uh, down a bit away from the central highlands in yellingbo which is there's a sub population mm-hmm. of leadbeater's pop uh, possums living there yep. deer are, are a really big problem um down there so i guess each um area perhaps ha- has its own challenges and as yeah. we said before you now cats are a new thing um, so <laughs> yeah it's it's just a <laughs> thing after thing yeah um, yeah yeah
0: so maybe but and the i guess the kind of pressures that each one of those introduced species, that you've got cats, are obviously like the, a, a, an apex predator that never existed previously. Very agile, able to climb trees. But then you've got, you know, say, deer, cattle, etc. Soil compaction affecting new growth of trees. It's sort of if you just took that on its own jet and didn't have fires and didn't have logging. That's that in itself is a mm-hmm. cluster. And, and you
1: know, I mean, this is the um, the devil's advocate question, but why? You know, like if if these little creatures whether they're lead bitters possum or whatever can't survive you know from a um, evolutionary thing why should we be letting them or keeping them alive, you know. What's, so. why, why is the push? What's their significance? Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: What is the significance of these critters in that in that
2: forest area? Uh,
1: other yeah. than that it was their, I mean, it was oh, their country and it, we've introduced all this yeah, stuff, yeah. but yeah, we, I, we're good at doing that. Yeah,
2: I, and I guess that fits in with, like, broader um, questions in terms of the environmental ethics and there's sort of arguments for that. So, you know, if a species is on the way out, why not, you know, let's just leave it. And, I mean, to be honest, there's a lot of species that um, there's very small amounts and there's a lot of money in terms of conservation going in to protect them. Yeah. But, I mean, at the same time, I think in many different ways they're valuable. So they have their own, I think, inherent value and a lot of us w- within environment movements are deep ecologists that's what we'd call it yes. and really see the forest as something special in its own right mm. um, but at the same time you know we have these environmental assets um, accounting basically mm. that you know says that the value of the forest in terms of the water it um, it generates in terms of the carbon storage it has yeah. all these things put together if you just present it to you know the economic advisor for Matthew Guy or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um it, it makes a, a lot of sense to protect this area.
1: Yeah. I um think, Yeah, I guess, you know, it, it also says something about the uh, the health of the forest, if the creatures that should be able to survive there actually are. Yeah. Um, you know, like it, it says about having the, the little nooks for them to live in and you know, the the right um, you know, food and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. So
2: and I of, yeah. I think where I th- definitely, we don't really understand what nature is. We've sort of lost that raw nature, mm-hmm. and I think this is perhaps one of the very few places left in Victoria where you can go and you can go on a walk, yeah. and not really see anyone, see areas where it's relatively undisturbed if you know where to go away from the logging. Yeah, and there's don't just, tell anyone where those places <laughs> there's are. There's <you>? just <laughs> that hope that um, we might protect mm. a bit of nature. Mm. Um, and not have to manage everything and almost gardening for the forest. Um, Hmm. So that's where landscape protection like the Great Forest National Park comes in.
1: And that's something we're really losing, I think, is that connection with the land. I mean, obviously, you know, um, our Indigenous people have that in a a big way, but even, you know, there's a lot of people who who don't walk outside and have a look at what the weather's doing, for example. You know, So people don't understand weather patterns, they don't understand what's happening and so we're, we're increasingly becoming disconnected so I think it, it's valuable to go and have a look at that
0: mm. yeah. and again it's always that argument is not just for us, it's a the future and the, exactly. the future's future. Yeah.
1: yeah, and this stuff doesn't change overnight. It certainly <laughs>
0: doesn't. Uh, Justin Kelly, thank you for coming in this uh, uh, this evening. Um, how can people find out about Watch?
2: Yeah, so I think the best way is uh, to go over to our website, uh, mm-hmm. Watch spelt with an O. dot org. au. Um, you can also find us on Facebook and yep. Twitter, and we're always posting stuff. Yep. Um, I, I think generally, just get involved in. I think the forest movement broadly, yep. like learn about it. Um, start paying more attention. Um, yeah, I think that's the best way to learn and get involved. And I mean, not not um, everyone will want to go out and survey, but yep. you know, we need people writing letters. We need people chatting to their friends. That this is this is an issue. And Doing of course, a little bit of everything. It needs to be something politicians take note of. That you know, conservation is something. Um, to care about and uh, yeah. there's been uh, previous premiers both Labor and Liberal have um, have uh, created new national parks um, over the last uh, few decades but the previous um, government and this government really haven't done hasn't done anything in that uh-huh. space so I think we need some big conservation sure. action
0: you've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best known community radio station 3RRR 102.7 in Melbourne For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.